Good afternoon. Here we are on episode three of Latinx in the Inland Empire. Today we have Freddy de la Paz, who's going to discuss with us Mexican American identity in the Greater California area, as well as Indigenous sustainability. Good morning, Freddy. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here. It's of a pleasure. Course. So I had the pleasure of meeting you in Professor David Lewis Brown's class, but I was not fortunate to see you present on your research, which I've heard a lot about on campus. The reason I wanted to interview you is because I believe you are one of the most professional and kind-hearted people who is doing the work. Um, Freddie, tell us about what we missed at your talk on Mexican-American identity and how that's important for us in the Latin, Latinx and Chicanx community in the Inland Empire to understand. Well, because a lot of us there are Mexican-American. First of all, thank you so much for that. those kind words. I mean, that, that means a lot. Um, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the talk I gave was uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, essentially, it was on my research on American uh, Mexican-American identities, um, which kind of uh, interwove some of the Chicanx, Chicana, Chicano um, movements and identities as well. Uh, but I kind of took like a historical lens along with the cultural studies lens uh, in my approach. Um, my methodology essentially took historical events and precedents that were set in Mexico uh, early on in the um, at the turn of the uh, 20th century and even back as far as uh, during uh, the time of uh, indigenous peoples before the pre-Columbian exchange or the Columbian exchange. Um, and I kind of just wanted to work my way backwards and then forwards again so that people get the context as to where Mexican peoples come from and the diversity in that. Mm -hmm. um, so like a little quick uh, overview, um, mm -hmm. essentially we have these um, categories of Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, um, and then we have Mexican-American, then we have Latino, Latina, Latinx, right? Mm -hmm. So they're all very different. Um, what does each one represent? How do they differ? Um, and uh, in which ways do they kind of interconnect? Those are kind of the things that I wanted to look at and I wanted to dissect further. So when it came to my own identity, um, mm -hmm. I, I've always referred to myself, uh, re referenced myself as a Mexican-American individual. Uh, I never really associated with the Chicano identity. Um, and I feel like that's not unique to myself after having multiple conversations mm -hmm. with people, not only in on campus, but in and around, you know, the multiple spheres that I uh, belong to, um, I noticed a pattern that people don't necessarily uh, feel that connection or the resonance with Chicanx or Chicano, Chicana identity. Um, and many do, but there were there was this whole other facet of people that uh, belong to, or rather associated more so with Mexican American identity. So I wanted to see why. And from my own personal experiences, I got a certain understanding of what it meant to be Mexican because of my parents, right? Mm -hmm. So I was born and raised in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, I grew up here uh, during the tumultuous uh, riots of the mid 90s, early 90s. And then uh, we moved away to Vegas because it was safer there. 
and there was time. Uh, there was a uh, safety. There was a uh, this opportunity for uh, upward social mobility, and uh, I met my partner there, and then uh, we ended up getting married there. And she was uh, doing an architectural program at UNLV, and then she was uh, uh, selected to uh, come over here to USC. So we moved back out here, and I was, uh, you know, familiar with LA, but I knew a lot had changed since then. So I, I hadn't moved, I hadn't lived in LA for a good fifteen years or so, but I'd been coming back and forth to visit family. And uh, during that time, I realized that I had a certain idea of what Mexican, what it meant to be Mexican, because my mom being from Zacatecas and my dad being from Guadalajara, but me having been, having spent most of my time in the U.S didn't have much context outside of that as far as what it meant to be Mexican, right? Mm -hmm. So when we got the opportunity, my, my partner and I, we ended up going to Mexico. So everywhere from like Guadalajara, uh, then to Cancun and the Yucatan area, and then um, Mexico City, Baja. Um, and I realized that the Mexican identity is so drastically, drastically different according to regionality, history, dialect, language, people, food. So there is no one Mexican or Mexican representation, and even more so in the U.S. because it gets even more convoluted with American cultural identity and so on. So that's where I came from, and I wanted to see what everyone else had to say, what commonalities, and then do some research, uh, you know, very much like in the in the traditional uh, uh, research sense, academic sense, to see why that was. And yeah, I was just curious to mm -hmm. answer the question for myself. Definitely. I'm very interested in a couple things you said. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. The first is um, specifically about the differences and interconnectedness of these, let's just say, Chicano X, Latinx, um, is there something that you think is interconnected that you learned in your research? Or did you learn more about the differences? Um, what did your research illuminate? What did you, um, what did you conclude? So I, my, my research, I don't think it's ever going to end. I think it's... Um, or what are you adding? No, no, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like uh, I, I want to be very upfront and state that I'm I'm in no expert in, in any way, but at the same time, I had this curiosity to want to answer questions for myself and hopefully other people can be um, uh, enlightened or motivated to do the same. Um, but a few of the commonalities I found include um, this resilience and this uh, self-determination as far as who people see themselves as, mm -hmm. why they see themselves as such, and also this almost like dynamism, like being very dynamic and adapting and incorporating things that are not so much strategic, but they're uh, reflections of one's, I guess, essence in the sense that, let's say a Mexican family moves or migrates to the US. You don't have that uh, connection to your traditional foods or whatever it might be. Um, so because you don't have that connection, you, you have to adapt by using foods that you have here, right? So you make the best of it and then that becomes tradition. So the next generation makes it the same way mom or dad used to make it and so on and so on. So there's this resilience, there's this 
self-determination and there's this desire to want to still retain your essence, what, what makes you you? Not because you have to, because it's the right thing to do, because it's an expectation, at least not always, but because there is this kind of like lineage or this like, uh, I don't know, there's romanticism, but at the same time, there's like this real essence of oneself. So those are some of the, some of the connections I found. And can you tell me a little bit, that's very important to, to understand, like you said, these are really big words, big themes, like you said, self-determination, right, for a Mexican-American mm -hmm. individual, uh, being dynamic, mm -hmm. um, resilient. Mm -hmm. um, are, did you find that there were many obstacles to this research, or did you feel that you were able to really use, like you said, this history, these different lenses to start answering these questions? And are there questions that now you have for understanding, for example, what Chicanx, Latinoex, Mexican-American, how that is relevant? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, as far as the questions that were raised and they're, they're still being raised during my, my research process, uh, include um, you know, how people see themselves and why because a lot of people do so without being self-reflective. Um, and I've had that luxury to have that. A lot of people don't have the luxury to state who they are. They have people tell them who they are because of hierarchical um, you know, uh, structures or uh, because of family dynamics or mm -hmm. tradition, whatever it might be. Um, but I've had the privilege to be able to travel and get to know my heritage and my culture um, and I want to not not make it seem like I'm imposing the need for people to do so, but if you can, I think it's very fruitful and very fulfilling. Um, but some of the questions I would raise along the way include people's own like uh, idea of, about themselves and why. So um, like I asked my buddy uh, who uh, I've, I used to work with and uh, uh, he's uh, undocumented and uh, He's kind of gotten to see the world from both sides, being a Mexican American or a Mexican uh, person. Um, I asked him whether he identified as either Chicanx or Latinx or other, and flat out just said Latinx. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why do you consider yourself Latinx? Oh, well, because I I never really grew up with Chicano culture. I don't even know what that really means. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really a Mexican American because I was born in Mexico. Um, and because of other uh, elements, he considers himself Latinx. Like, oh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. um, but that kind of probed this questioning within, within himself because he hadn't really thought about it until that moment. So it's very interesting. Um, and I like seeing like those wheels turn as I ask questions because while it might make someone else think, it's also making me think, I wonder why that is. What dynamics in popular culture um, are making us question our identity or be sure of something that we're not sure of, mm -hmm. you know, without being self-reflective? Um, and it's it's a lot of reasons, mm -hmm. but I'm still trying to figure out why that is. Yeah, I, I'm very interested in what you've been talking about, specifically around <clears throat> um, individuals who are un undocumented from our either Latinx or Chicano background, mm -hmm. um, because there are a lot of us mm -hmm. who 
um, know lots of people who are doing great things here and are living in this country and are not of it, so to speak, Freddie. Um, I wanted to ask, your indigenous sustainability work, mm -hmm. did you find any synergy from the work you were doing around your Mexican-American identity research? Was there connections there that you were able to draw? Um, or did you feel that they were kind of different, different kind of avenues that you went at? Or did you kind of circle around? I don't know. I, th I think I kind of circled around, but at the same time, I, I, I reached the point in my higher education uh, path where I realized I don't like what I'm studying, and my declared, um, you know, area of study doesn't reflect who I really am or what my pursuits are. So I'm gonna, you know, take a little break and figure it out, figure out what I want to study. So I came to the realization that I really liked religious studies. That was my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And along with my uh, 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 major, I tacked on two minors, one of which was American Indian Studies, which is a great passion of mine, mm -hmm. indigeneity and American Indian Studies, as well as civic and community engagement. So kind of like this uh, desire to establish community mm -hmm. and um, organize people for a common goal. Um, those kinds of things were really like... Uh, inherent in my essence. I, I felt like that's what I wanted to study. Um, and again, bringing things like compassion, kindness to academia, because I had very cold experiences, you know, early on in school, but I learned that that wasn't the universal truth for everybody. And it didn't have to be, things can change. So along with that, I, I started to realize that I really liked, you know, culture and the humanities in the sense, in, in its fullest uh, extent. So uh, through studying religion, I got to learn how to be compassionate, but at the same time, learn how to be very critical in my research. Um, but you don't have to be, you know, a jerk about it and tell people, well, your religion is wrong or something like that. Cause those are very dear beliefs that one holds. Mm -hmm. So I, I attempt to approach culture and all my research in that same way. So through indigeneity, my prime focus or, uh, research interest lies in spirituality and religion of indigenous peoples, uh, more so in the hemispheric America, so North and South America. Um, and I realized that sustainability was the underlying tone that I seek to apply in everything I do. Because sustainability, for me, it's like that concept that encompasses everything. As, as far as I'm concerned, the way I approach things, if it's not sustainable, then why not? And hmm. how can it be? Hmm. Um, that goes into more than just technology, that goes into more than just um, systems. Uh, I'm talking about like human relationality. Mm -hmm. um, so when I'm talking about indigenous sustainability, that's what I'm really trying to tap into. Mm -hmm. This kind of like interconnectedness, um, things like kinship, things like reciprocity, and even things like spirit or the cosmos those are concepts that aren't really talked about. And yet one thinks they know those concepts well enough, when in reality, they have no idea the paradigm shift that one could make by simply taking an indigenous studies class or at least humoring these concepts that um, would completely decolonize their, their thinking. Um, because indigenous peoples think very differently than Western peoples do. 
so when I think about sustainability, I think about it that way. And the way they interconnect with uh, identity uh, politics and more so the Mexican-American identity and my research in there mm -hmm. is the way that um, essentially one comes to understand themselves um, in the truest extent that they can, that, that they possibly can. In other words, being as authentic to themselves as possible without allowing uh, other factors that might not be genuine to skew their understanding or belief about themselves. Um, and through that, one can come to be, to live a more sustainable life, I guess, if you can want to call it that. Um, but indigenous sustainability taps into that humanity that one has and our essence as humans to be able to interconnect and not create these separations or distinctions between peoples, mm -hmm. between even animals uh, or what we would deem uh, objects. Um, they all have personhood. So because they're all, they're all potentially people or have been humans in the past, then we need to approach it with a very uh, more respectful way than we typically do. And I'm still trying to figure out how they're going to connect in my eventual dissertation, if they do connect. But mm -hmm. those are two of my research interests so far. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One thing you said, which I'm just really interested in, because it's very relevant to being Latinx in the Inland Empire, is this idea of sustainability. Um, sustaining your spirituality. Sustaining your sense of your culture. Um, sustaining your faith. Um, like you said, that takes um, an idea of reciprocity. I really like that, giving, receiving, it's a cycle. Um, for a lot of us who um, really don't know a lot about indigenous religion and spirituality, is there something um, that you can tell us that is relevant to maybe the greater LA area about indigenous spirituality that you've learned or, or that you're interested in um, researching? Um, I would say in general, and this goes even beyond the LA area, I'd say indigenous culture in general. And again, this is a big generalization, but what I found is that there's very little distinction between things that are innate and innate part of, uh, indigenous culture. Let's put it this way. In many indigenous cultures, there is no word for art. There is no word or concept for religion because everything can, associates with art. Everything um, has to do with religion. There is no separation. So because there is no separation, there's no need to distinguish that with a word, right? So if one looks at like Mesoamerican cultures in uh, Mexico, um, everything that had a function, a purpose, was also very artistically motivated or design oriented. That's not an accident. It's because everything that had a purpose also had an aesthetic purpose, whether it was functional, it was also aesthetically pleasing. Um, it reflected uh, one's spiritual beliefs um, and so on and so on. So I think that as Westerners, we can come to understand that there is no distinction or separation uh, between categories, things, or so, or, and so on. And we tend to want to categorize things in our Western society so that we can attribute good or bad qualities to it. 
and by attribu attributing good or bad qualities to it, then we can compartmentalize it and find a way to utilize it for our own individual pursuits later on. Um, and a lot of indigenous cultures don't think of themselves in individual terms. It's very much in a communal term and communal can be either within the group of people that are immediately around you or in a, in a, in a universal sense. But it's very much a communal kind of identity and uh, culture. And again, I'm generalizing, but at the same time, this is uh, what I found to be the case in a lot of the cultures that I've studied, and that's in California, in Mexico, um, Hawaii, the Polynesia, um, Alaska, yeah, and so on. So what I've kind of taken from what you said is it's important for us to um, understand our Western gaze and our Western um, ideologies because they're not applicable, like you, like your research has shown, um, to a lot of indigenous sustainability discussions because we're coming at it from a, a way of trying to describe, categorize, um, use binaries, um, which are not relevant to indigenous um, peoples mm -hmm. in America or South America. Wow. Mm. So you're actually articulating things that are very, it's almost, Freddie, like you're a translator. Mm. Um, how does that feel in your work to, to almost take new, a new culture, right? These indigenous peoples. Um, do you find that you're translating like ethnography? You said you used the word history. Um, talk to me about how you gather information, how you're um, putting out feelers, how you're making connections mm. um, with these peoples mm. to better understand our community and yourself. Yeah, so my the beginnings of my research in uh, or my study of indigeneity came uh, while I was uh, doing my undergrad at CSUN. So that was my minor in American Indian Studies. Um, but I've always felt this this part of me where it's it's almost like guilt. Like if I take something or if I'm giving something, I have the responsibility to also give back. And that's the reciprocity. I didn't really understand it that way, but because I was gaining so much knowledge from the minor in American Indian Studies, I wanted to pursue that further in a way that I could potentially give back. So I joined the American Indian Student Association, ASA at CSUN, which is really cool because we did a lot of uh, you know activism work and a lot of uh, fundraising and volunteering, um, things of that sort. So through the, the club, I was able to learn or rather expand my learning by applying these concepts and also integrating non-academic uh, qualities into my academic pursuits. Things like, again, establishing relationships, things like um, friendship, uh, things like uh, this interconnectedness to uh, non-human persons, um, we actually uh, started like a, this initiative to create a garden on campus, which was super cool. And like that was able to like, that catered to a lot of the the praxis that we were trying to like establish mm. through the pedagogy that we were learning. Um, so that was one thing, um, but I wanted to also expand upon that in all my pursuits. So 
I wanted to, as much as possible, integrate academic and non-academic things. And the way I did that was by learning from people who are academics, but also are indigenous elders uh, who are wise. Um, and I, I say wise because they have applied the knowledge that they've been bestowed with. They've demonstrated and proven for themselves that it's, it's applicable. In other words, knowledge is one thing. It can be learned, but it hasn't been proven or applied yet. Wisdom has been lived and it's been proven, at least to an individual, which could potentially be applied again. So I try to approach it from both avenues. Knowledge, which I can gain from academia, but wisdom is something that I can potentially gain from outside of academia and within academia. Mm -hmm. One thing you said, which is very relevant to each of our episodes that each of our guests and I have talked about and conversed about is that lived experience, the lived knowledge of indigenous first world people, Mexican Americans, Latin Americans, Chicanos and Latinos. Um, that is one of the reasons we're doing this platform is we want to really share all of the lived experience of students and our community. Thank you so much, Freddie. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about the challenge of applying this theory to practice. Mm. Um, in, like you said, academic settings or non-academic settings. Um, do you see yourself in the future, Freddie, pursuing a, a doctorate or a, a, a law degree? Do you see yourself continuing in academia? Or like you said, do you feel that you can help our communities in different ways? Uh, well, I definitely feel this uh, sense of responsibility to towards my community, um, and I belong to many communities. So everything from Latinx communities to non-Latinx communities to indigenous communities, anywhere I can help, I'll help if I can. But again, I use the word help in a very loose sense because it tends to be misinterpreted. Um, but again... Um, I see myself working within academia to a certain extent, um, but I also see myself uh, being a civil servant. Uh, if I can work within a local uh, political realm, I will do so if I feel like it, I'm up to it or I'm needed in that extent. Um, but I also see myself uh, you know, doing many things. I don't wanna be bound to just academia. Mm -hmm. um, I don't wanna be bound to simply doing activism work. I don't wanna be bound to politics. Um, I wanna do as many things as I feel I can and I, I can do, but at the same time that come, that resonate with me, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I really liked what you said about really being there responsibly, actively engaged to help people. But also you touched on, you know, setting healthy boundaries with our community. Um, Freddie, can you talk to us a little bit about like self-care um, in our community? Um, are you, I really like that you touched on that. That makes me feel that you have a, an understanding of um, when to take care of yourself and your family and when to take care of others. Um, can you speak on how you balance some of that? Yeah, definitely. Um, when you have so much to share 
but you also have a lot to take care of. Yes. Um, I feel like anyone that is in grad school obviously doesn't only live for school. They've got other things going on in their life, right? So for, for myself, in my own experience, um, I work uh, part-time, uh, which I just downgraded a few hours, at a Mexican restaurant um, in downtown LA, which is very busy. Um, and I could easily work more than I work right now, um, but I make an effort to maintain weekends off to spend with my partner and family and friends. Because again, mental health is very important. Mm -hmm. Mental health in the extent that you have time not only for other people, but for yourself. I'm very much about like having my own personal space and just having quiet time or reading what I wanna read or watching you know, the, the junk shows on TV if I wanna watch it, whatever. Um, so school is very important. No matter what I'm doing, I try to approach it at 100% to the fullest extent. If I know I'm not gonna be able to provide my full uh, abilities to it, then I'll question whether it's worth doing or not. I'm not gonna say I'm never gonna do that, but if I have to cut corners, then I'll cut the corners that I can or that are necessary in order for me to be able to see things through. Um, that includes grad school. Right. Um, just this last week, I had to go see family. Well, I didn't have to go see, but I wanted to go see family because there was a medical emergency. Everything's fine, but I literally dropped everything at school to just go and be with family. I did. I felt great about it. I have no regrets. I skipped two assignments, which I had the luxury to do because I hadn't missed anything up until then. And I'm completely fine with it. Mm -hmm. So you have to make difficult decisions sometimes in order to, again, remain healthy, positive, and make sure that you're paying attention to other things in life than just simply school, work, friends, whatever it might be. Mm. But mental health is extremely important, especially in graduate school, because there is this expectation that, or the, traditionally, the ex expectation that you're gonna do everything for grad school and just focus on that for however many years of your life. Right. That's not realistic, it's not gonna happen, not when you have student loans, not when you're a person of color, not when you uh, don't completely fall in line with traditional um, uh, higher educational standards, let's put it that way. I'd like to circle back, thank you so much, Freddie, to what you said about the difficulties, because I wonder, <clears throat> I've learned so much from our conversation briefly. I wonder if a lot of our community does have a difficulty with these labels. Mm -hmm. um, no one likes to be labeled. We're not canned soup here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and I and I I often find myself in that same position as you, um, looking at these uh, terms that seem very applicable in the academy. Mm -hmm but not with our everyday people. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that with people in your community that you're seeing more of a, an identity around their country of origin? Like for example, I identify as Colombian American. Mm. Um, that's my personal choice. Mm. And I'm noticing that like, like yourself. Mm -hmm. Are you noticing that as well? Um, when I use the word Chicana X or Latino X, a lot of people I notice don't have a very clear understanding mm -hmm. of like the definitions of these terms mm -hmm. and know how to historically contextualize them. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it really sometimes feels like it's separating us. Mm-hmm. Do you? What do you think of these terms that uh, are are used or non-used? Mm-hmm. Do you think they are uh, difficult for our community, mm-hmm. or do you think we could make it easier? Yeah, I think terms serve a purpose. And those purpose purposes are either multifaceted, can be multifaceted and serve multiple purposes, or they can serve to empower either one group of people or, you know, many. Terms like Latinx in particular, they can be used in a positive way to build coalition, but they can also be used very loosely to apply to many peoples and categories of people who don't necessarily fall in line with that um, uh, identifier. So because of that, we need to be very careful as to how we apply it because not everyone identifies as Latinx and I'm not going to claim to know you better than you know yourself. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing. Um, I think it's good to develop separation as well. People think of separation as this negative word. Not necessarily. Separation is good because it allows you space to realize who you are. Um, when you can define yourself for yourself, um, then you can build upon it. But if you're building coalition without even knowing how you identify or who, what your cultural context or background really is, then how are you going to build that coalition? You're not being genuine to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and words like authenticity and genu- uh, uh, being genuine aren't necessarily um, specific to national identity. But I'm talking about individually authentic uh, for one to do that. That's necessary in order to build coalition. So we we see these terms like Chicanx. We see these terms mm-hmm. like Mexican-American. We see these terms like Colombian-American and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's okay. They, they can have separation. But when, you know, we need um, strength in numbers politically or otherwise, we need to be able to lean on ourselves and build that coalition through um, commonalities. The fact that we are all, are all Latino, Latina, Latinx can facilitate those forms of coalition, which can serve a, a greater purpose or a different purpose than it would have served if we simply identify as this other category. Freddie, I'm really interested in what you're talking about because I really feel that that is the direction that our community is going. Mm. You use the word separation Mm. as a place to cultivate your own space, Mm. your own idea of yourself. Mm. And I really think that's important. And I'm hoping that we can take our knowledge and empower the next generation to have that space, Mm. to allow them to, like you said, Mm self-identify and give them that time and space to develop into that concept of themselves. Um, because that's something that I think historically has not been an, uh, an opportunity or luxury for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. A lot of us, unfortunately, I've learned, are reproducing these ideas and concepts mm-hmm. that um, we were raised with. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I agree completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even like uh, spiritualities, racial categories, um, and again, nationalities. Mm-hmm. These are all very 
subjective and at the same time, they're malleable. Um, we need to realize that categories serve a function, again, like we stated earlier, and they usually serve a political purpose, but ultimately they're social fabrications. They're, I don't wanna say disingenuous, but they are not necessarily reflective of one's individuality. So I hope one day we'll get to the point where we can just be individuals and not have to be categorized. Um, and we can just live the lives that we would like to without social impediments, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. But I think there's strides that we're taking currently to facilitate the next generation's um, quality of life uh, and things of that sort, mm -hmm. for sure. And in closing, uh, we were invited to a screening this evening. Yes. I wanted to see if you could just remind us who's, what, who's speaking, what time, where we can support you guys. Definitely. So yeah, it's my really good friend, Armando Ibanez. Uh, so he uh, has a mini series on YouTube, which he is titled Undocumented Tales. We're going to be screening that at the uh, QRC, Queries for Center, here on Pomona's campus uh, today from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and we'll have light snacks and refreshments. And he basically uh, outlines the intersectionality between uh, being undocumented, Latinx, and queer in Los Angeles currently. It's very interesting. He's got a lot of awards and a lot of accolades for his work. Mm -hmm. Well, we hope we can get there and learn a lot more because I think that is the direction. All these intersections, all these uh, trans disciplines mm -hmm. that you mentioned <clears throat> to aid in your research are very important as people in the academy mm -hmm. so we can lessen the, the, the heaviness of these terms mm -hmm. Um, so that people like this gentleman mm -hmm. can present, mm -hmm. be included, have access mm -hmm. to our students, and share a lived experience mm -hmm. of exactly. being an undocumented um, LGBTQ plus queer mm -hmm. individual of Mexican ancestry. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you. This was great. I wanted to thank you so much for being our third guest on Latinx in the Inland Empire. From Studio B3 at Claremont University, this is Latinx in the Empire.